Today's podcast is brought to you by Tape Call, a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at Tape Call and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. Tape Call lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's a perfect tool for recording phone interviews. Tape Call keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over 3 million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tapacall on a day-to-day basis. Visit tapacall.com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tapacall at an exclusive 20% off discount by visiting tapacall.com slash podcast. Get me a close-up of food because that's important, but, you know, let's not do the food porn thing because we're really, we want to see the people making the food. We want to see the place. We want to get a sense of place. Um, it's really about community. It's about tradition. It's about culture um, and how these food places fit into, you know, the wider, you know, the fabric of a city. Welcome to Tall Journalism. My name is Michael O'Connell here with another podcast about digital media and the people who are making it. This time I'm back in studio. I've got a guest here on a, on a cold Saturday morning here in Northwest Washington, D.C. Uh, joining me is one of the founders of Culinary Backstreets, a travel and dining uh, website. And I'm going to let the gentleman introduce himself because I know that I'm going to screw up his name. So, sir, could you introduce yourself to our reader or our listeners? Yes. Thanks for having me, Mike. Uh, I'm Yigal Schleifer. I'm the uh, editor-in-chief and co-founder of Culinary Backstreets, culinarybackstreets.com. We're a um, food, travel, and culture uh, website and a sort of hybrid journalism and uh, money-making outfit. I can explain that more. Journalism and money making. Tell me more. <laughs> yes, it sounds great. Well, a little bit of money. Um, or at least that's the idea. You're, but, you're, you're also continuing this scam <laughs> called the internet. Um, but uh, I'll give the background a little bit. And, yeah, and, and where, where that will explain. Uh, so, it, you know, about me, I'm a journalist who's been working mostly as a freelancer for 20 something years, based in New York at one point, then uh, went to Istanbul, Turkey. Uh, and that's the relevant place for this story. Um, I was there for eight years between 2002 and 2010, working mostly as a correspondent for the Christian Science Monitor, as a stringer for the English language service of the German press agency, Deutsche Presse, and freelancing in general, and covering foreign policy, Turkish affairs, doing more, let's say, hard news uh, based out of Istanbul. In 2009, uh, a friend and I, an American uh, who's still there, Ansel Mullins, a writer, uh, we came up with this idea for what was just going to be a fun blog to do about where to eat locally and authentically in Istanbul. That was called Istanbul Eats. And it really was just a blog. We Each of us was taking turns. I think each of us was writing once a week about just little holes in the wall that we liked. Um, and the idea was really, it was born out of, um, we kept getting being frustrated at the articles that we saw, travel articles, mostly in travel sections. People would come to Istanbul and they would keep going to the same old tourist traps or they would write about these places that we thought were just terrible. Or we kept meeting people who came to Istanbul and were just directed to these bad places and left saying, I didn't eat well, when we knew that it's you know, one of the most amazing places to eat in the world. And especially if you kind of explore these back streets that we like to do. Um, and I, I should also say that as a journalist, sort of I've always used my journalism as an excuse to look for places to eat you know so I used to I did a, my first job out of journalism school was at the New York Post actually I was a general assignment reporter 
you know, being sent out to the far reaches of Queens and Brooklyn. And it was always a great excuse to find, you know, oh, you know, Guyanese food, you know, or uh, I don't know, you know, Senegalese, a Senegalese restaurant, you know, and it was great. So I've always had this kind of, you know, I, I always thought the greatest, you know, sort of side benefit of doing journalism was, you know, finding all these great places to eat. So, um, so it was a chance to write about these places that we liked. So that just started off, you know, really as a, as just a blog, you know, um, and uh, that grew. Uh, we started doing it regularly. People were really enjoying it. It really filled a void. Nobody was really doing this in Istanbul at that time, in English or in Turkish. And um, then uh, about a year later, we had enough material for a book. So we approached a local publisher about doing a guidebook, kind of collecting all the material. So we did a guidebook in English, which was then translated also into Turkish. And then somewhere along the way, soon after that, a friend who does food tours in Rome said, you know, you guys should think about doing food tours oh, in Istanbul. And we thought about that. We thought, this is interesting. Um, we met a guide, uh, interesting person who we liked. And the idea was really then, you know, that to take what we were doing, writing about these places that we like, these small traditional food makers, these old school little places, these mom and pop shops, really places that we felt, you know, needed to be written about as a way of preserving them in a certain way, because a lot of them were disappearing, and applying, so applying the approach that we were taking in the blog to a food tour. So a narrative-driven food tour, one that's informed sort of by the same journalistic impulses that were informing what we were writing about, but applying that to a food tour. So we developed a route, uh, I think we called it initially, yeah, still called that Culinary Secrets of the Old City. It takes you through areas of the old city of Istanbul, but that you wouldn't get to on your own, that the tourists don't go to, and then really getting the stories of the people making the food and the stories of the city, and really learning something through the food. So narrative-driven food tourism or food, you know, culinary travel. And that started growing. So basically, and then in, um, we added another, another two routes in Istanbul with, with other guides. Um, and then in 2012, we decided to take this model that was working really nicely in Istanbul um, and apply it to other places. So then, thus was born Culinary Backstreets. Um, and we started off originally uh, in Barcelona, Athens, Shanghai, uh, then Mexico City. Uh, now we're also in Rio. Uh, we're in Tokyo. Uh, recently, Lisbon. We're in Tbilisi, Georgia. And it, it, we're applying the same model in each place. We find a local correspondent who's a real enthusiast about the backstreet scene, you know, mm -hmm. real, the local and authentic food scene. Um, and we get them to start writing about these places that we feel are important in terms of writing about the people cooking there, uh, preserving traditions. And then once we kind of get going on the ground there, we develop a activity, usually a, a walk of some kind, a food, food tour, and they kind of work together. And so, you know, the idea is to really, in a certain way, you know, we have this revenue generating activity that subsidizes what is now at this point a quite robust editorial component. Well, so that's, that's, <laughs> that's it no, in a nutshell. I mean, that, that's a really neat approach because you've sort of, one of the things about, about traveling is, especially somebody who's going to a, you know, a foreign city, a city they've never been to is they, you know, they, they want the sense of authenticness. Right. And so you, you've, you've created a tour for them built around food and your own sort of particular philosophy about backstreets. Now, right. when you, when exactly. you, when you get these, these freelance reporters into these, these writers in these, these cities, what is it you explain to them? You know, what's the pitch? What do you say? Right. About? Exactly. So we say to them, the first thing I say to them is this is not about food. 
but it's about people. And that's really our focus. Our focus is really, you know, and I say this also to the photographers that we work with, is like, don't, don't, you know, I mean, get me a close up of food because that's important, but, you know, let's not do the food porn thing because we're really, we want to see the people making the food. We want to see the place. We want to get a sense of place. Um, it's really about community. It's about tradition. It's about culture um, and how these food places fit into, you know, the wider, you know, the fabric of a city. Um, so I say this to the writers too, which is, you know, we're really interested in stories. We're interested in the stories of the people. And we kind of almost see ourselves as almost like oral historians in the sense of get the story, you know, let's find out, you know, how, why this place is still around and who are the people running it and, and who are the people coming in. So it's the same that you would say to any journalist, which is, you know, come with your curiosity, you know, come with your kind of sense of enthusiasm and let's apply it towards getting the, the full story of a particular, you know, little place and, and really get to know the people. I mean, that's really, I keep, you know, kind of keep coming back, but it's the stories of the people. Um, and it's almost like, you know, obviously you want to eat good food and you want to, but it, sometimes, you know, the, the experience of a place elevates the, the food in a certain way, right? Around the time that this, uh, the original blog that this came from, Istanbul Eats, got started. I'd done, and one of the things that sort of informed the starting of the blog is I'd gotten an assignment to do uh, a piece for the New York Times travel section, which it was called, they had this um, feature called High Low, and you'd kind of, you'd go to a high place, and then you go to the low place, right? You know, and so I went to um, this high restaurant in Istanbul of a chef who was uh, working on, he was really had aspirations to kind of make this the first Michelin-starred restaurant in Istanbul. And it was very nice, you know, really nice experience, very good food, you know, very French-influenced. And then the low uh, was this restaurant uh, run uh, by a family from um, Antakya, which is a city in the south of Turkey near the Syrian border. Food very much influenced by Syrian cooking, you know, more kind of, let's say, Middle Eastern in what people think of Middle Eastern than, let's say, the classic Turkish cuisine, but delicious, you know, great kebabs, great food. And, you know, the, to me, the experience of the low was so much more fulfilling and satisfying, um, you know, very good food in the high restaurant, but there was something about the soul and the satisfaction and just the taste of the food in the low that was so great. Um, and I think, you know, so for us, that's very much, we sort of are informed, you know, the work that we do for Culinary Action is informed about this kind of, you know, exploring that, the low, because I find that there's a lot of, va you know, beyond just value. I mean, there's just a lot, so much more satisfaction there in terms of the experience and the, um, yeah, really the experience, I guess, is the way to put it. Yeah, and the great thing about food is, and looking at a, a culture or a city from it, its food perspective, that's food, that's the city, that's it. I mean, that's 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 a slice of their culture. Right. You know, that food was created from whatever, you know, from whatever the food, you know, the food that was available around there, the, the traditions they have in preparation the you know the high the low the restaurant whatever and the, and who are the, the skills of the chef so yeah. that gives you something reflective of that community yeah and you know i think one of the things we also kind of in our let's say philosophy as it were uh in terms of what we're doing is you know kind of in this day or in this age of of globalization you know there's a lot of sameness globally right you, you there's a starbucks everywhere and there's you know mcdonald's but even like beyond that i mean there's a lot of kind of sameness everywhere so one of the places where you can very quickly access, you know, authentic and authentic, uh, I'm doing air quotes, uh, people can't see that, but authentic is a difficult word. But anyways, you know, right. for lack of a better one, but you know, the quickest way to sort of enter local culture is through food. You know, I mean, there's other ways too, but you know, it's, it's, it takes more time to read books in the original language. You know, you could 
start reading all of Orhan Pamuk's books to to kind of understand Turkey, but it's a lot quicker to, you know, kind of go and do a kebab crawl in a certain neighborhood of Istanbul where we take people for such, you know, we have an activity like that called a kebab crawl where we take people to this neighborhood, uh, which is um, filled with kebab houses of folks from, again, Southeast Turkey, mostly from one particular town called Urfa. And it's a great scene. And you learn a lot about migration in Turkey and, and, you know, the rural migration to the cities. And you learn about the Kurdish issue and you learn about, you know, Turkish politics and you learn about obviously the food too. Uh, you learn about regional diversity. So, I mean, there's just so much, you know, and it's great. I mean, it's, uh, it's, it's kind of one of my favorite things to do. Likewise in Barcelona where we do, where we have, you know, both a local correspondence. We also do um, a few different walks and we do one in a neighborhood called Gracia. Gracia is a neighborhood that a lot of tourists don't get to. It's a little bit off the main tourist scene there and it has a very strong sense of Catalan identity. So our walk there focuses on the whole idea of Catalan identity and how's that reflected through the food and, you know, more than just food. I mean, so it's, yeah, so the food can tell a lot. So you, you've sort of started this out as a blog and you've sort of grown it into, tour, you know, hooked it up with touring, hooked it up into the this website Cultural backstreets, uh, sort of culinary backstreets. Cul- cul- I'm, you know, yeah, but cultural backstreets uh, is good too. Well, yeah, that's its, <laughs> that's its sister site. Exactly. That was not at all a mistake by <laughs> me. Uh, culinary backstreets, right. and, and sort of built around this sort of philosophy of getting off the main street of a city and, and sort of getting into the culture, getting into cuisine of each city. You know, you spent time in in Istanbul. What's that cultural story? What's that culinary story there? Right. So it's a bit of what I just talked about just before. I mean, you get migration is a big story, and that's expressed through the food. You know, Istanbul, for example, you know, you think, oh, kebab. But the truth of the matter is kebab is not an Istanbul food. Kebab is a food from eastern Turkey, from southeast Turkey. It came uh, with all, you know, the the people who've come to, to Istanbul over these last couple of decades and made it, you know, this booming city. So that's, it's one story. It's a story of economic change, rapid development. Um, And and for example, one of the things we try to do with the blog is, like I said, is kind of preserve, uh, get these oral histories because uh, the economy is changing so rapidly. There's so much urban development, so much construction. So a lot of these old little places are being displaced and we're trying to kind of catch them while we can or maybe bring them a new audience and and more customers um, in, in a way of kind of holding off their you know, perhaps inevitable demise just because this machine of of progress keeps rolling along. So it's a story of those things, uh, economic change, migration. It's a story of, in many ways, um, the divisions, the the social class, political divisions that are very vivid and and stark in Turkey kind of get reflected through the food. And, and, And just I'll give an example, which is when we started this blog in 2009, like I said before, there was there was a kind of nobody was doing this kind of thing. And, and one of the reasons was a lot of the places that we were writing about were, you know, these great, authentic, wonderful places. But they were neighborhoods that are, let's say, more religious, more conservative. And a lot of, you know, middle class, secular Turks would just not frequent these neighborhoods. I mean, and the other way around. Right. I mean, people just were not going. So, you know, so the Turkish equivalent of slumming it was going to, you know, a conservative you know, religious neighborhood and eating, you know, in a restaurant that was serving, let's say, the food of people from a particular area in southern Turkey. And that's changed now. I mean, I don't know if that we'd like to think that we had part in that, you know, helped that along. But I think it's changed now in the sense that also people are willing to explore a bit more their own city. 
Uh, so you have these divisions. So the, you know, so the the politics of Turkey were very much reflected in how people ate. Still is. So with the the different cities, the different sites that you uh, that you're writing about, do you find that? I mean, is your audience primarily travelers, or do, is is there a local sort of consumption? We get, to you? It's interesting. I mean, we get a local English speaking. I mean, we're 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 in English. I mean, we're not doing local language um, sites. So. In Istanbul, for example, or in Turkey, we have a very strong local, although, you know, I think a lot of those are expats. I mean, I'm just looking based on traffic, like, you know, so I can see who's coming from Turkey. Mostly travelers, uh, mostly Americans. That just seems to be our, you know, our audience right now. But English speakers, Australians, Canadians uh, from the UK. But in certain places, we found that it does appeal to a local audience. Uh, For example, earlier this year or last year in 2015, we started our uh, Georgia, Tbilisi, uh, Georgia um, section. And I feel like there, for some reason, we're really tapping into a local audience that seems Mm. to really... And I think part of it, in some places, and I think Istanbul would be included, some places feel, for whatever reason, they feel neglected or they feel like, you know, the outside world is kind of against them or they sort of feel like, hey, we have so much to offer, but no one really knows. You know, in Turkey, I think people rightfully feel like, you know, Turkish cuisine is one of these great world cuisines, but it's not as well known as French or Chinese or Italian. Um, I think Georgians feel that way too, and I would agree with them. It's amazing food. It's just a little country. People don't know that much about it. It's obviously always confused with Georgia and the United States. You know, it's it's hard when your name is Georgia, right? It's a branding issue. Exactly. So, uh, you know, so there I think, you know, there's like, and there's interesting things going on there with sort of local folks who are trying to revive, not revive, but but update the cuisine or promote it. So, so yeah, it's interesting. In certain places, we're able to tap in in a way that, into the local audience in a way that is different in other places. Now, you said that you sort of started out as a, I don't want to say a serious reporter, but a reporter who wrote um, about serious issues and, and hard news yeah, issues. Yeah. You, are you surprised that you're writing about food? Well, no. I mean, like I so one, like I said, you know, reporting for me has always been the sideline to finding, you know, the next place for lunch. So, you know, um, <laughs> it was part of the scam. <laughs> exactly. You know, like, so, I mean, you know, it's always, I've always, um, it's a subject that's always interested me. Um, you know, in the sense of, I feel like I've always brought. You've been my, eating for a long time is what you're saying. I've been eating for a long time, but I, but you know, I feel like, you know, I've always, for example, you know, living in New York, there's so much to explore, right. In terms of where to eat neighborhoods, types of cuisine, and I feel like I've always brought my skills as a journalist to that activity, right? So, you know, ferreting out places and, you know, you know, on Saturday nights when we were living in New York, you know, my wife and I would just, you know, get in the car and drive out to Queens and go exploring, you know, the back streets there. So it's always, you know, I feel like the same kind of skills of a journalist I would always bring to that cause, you know, and so, um, and, and, and like I said, in the work that we're doing now, we're really trying to make it not just about the food, but really about you know, that intersection of food and politics, the intersection of food and culture, the intersection of food and history, you know, not just intersections, but sort of how one informs the other, you know, and, and try to tell these bigger stories. And and in many, you know, the cities that we're working in, you know, we kind of have this criteria that we're trying to follow in terms of which cities do we work in, right? So, and we're trying to look at cities that have a great backstory, kind of a underlying tension, maybe is the way to put it, be it economic or political or, you know, in the case of Lisbon, for example, kind of a country that's sort of, you know, post-colonial power and kind of all the people that come there from these former colonies and and economic development. So, you know, kind of underlying tensions, underlying, you know, these kind of big underlying backstories 
you know, that, that end up being featured in every one of these food stories because they're really part of what's going on and the food tells that bigger story. So, you know, so in that sense, it's, it's kind of like, you know, again, the skills of, of the quote unquote serious journalist are brought to the subject of food, which is actually not such a, doesn't have to be such a light and fluffy thing. Um, it can be a quite serious and uh, significant story. Well, let's talk about sort of the journalistic aspect of it okay. that, you know, travel and uh, and food writing, entertainment and living things, you know, this type of writing, you know, a lot of people sort of enter into it as freelancers, build careers out of it. You know, what do you see as a good path to, to get this type of career? I mean, you know, I can only speak about my own experience and it's it's really comes from a different angle. Uh, yeah, uh, you know. Well, I mean, tell us, yeah. Well, but you know, I think I would say, you know, if I if I, maybe I would kind of zoom out from talking specifically about food and travel and just talking about kind of creating an independent product of your own or independent project project. And I think you know, in, in today's day and age, we have to talk about an independent brand. But you know, I think in my own experience, I, I mean, I've been working mostly as a freelancer. Most of my career was as a freelancer with occasional staff gigs here and there. Um, but one of the things that I saw, and this happened over my time in Istanbul, I got to Istanbul in 2002. So I got there at a time when, as a freelancer, you still had these sort of middle-sized newspapers as potential outlets, right? So I, um, you know, I did some reporting from Northern Iraq for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette. You know, I did some reporting for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, right? I mean, this sounds like it sounds ridiculous to talk, you know, to talk about that now because it's like that's so far away. But you know, when I first got there in 2002, you could still pitch editors at these sort of smaller papers for, especially for to do international uh, reporting. And that, you know, as, as as we all know, went pretty quickly. You know, around the time of the Iraq War. I mean, that's a subject for another podcast. You know, what did, what did the what did that what did that war in Iraq do to um to coverage? Because I think, anyways, the cost of covering that sure. story was just onerous for these papers anyways. But just to say that the outlets, you know, what was out there has really shrunk. On the other hand, what I saw um, in terms of creating this personal project that evolved into, uh, you know, something much more viable is that the overhead is so much lower, right? Mm -hmm. the, the, the cost of entry, the barriers to entry in terms of building something on, of your own is so much lower. So sometimes we'll get, you know, in, young journalists will, will get in touch and sort of want to know about how to get started. And, you know, I, I often suggest people, you know, if you have an idea of something, you know, it's it's worth pursuing it, now, you know, now because it's so much more doable in terms of you can set up, you know, a website for almost nothing. And you're in many ways, you can compete with a lot bigger organizations in a way that you could never compete with before because distribution is global now through the web. And, you know, the overhead is so much lower. Yeah, no, I, I agree. And, and I agree also that it has a lot to do with you know, having some ambition and drive and, you know, developing whatever that brand is, whatever, you know, whatever your passion is and, and going towards that. And I mean, it's clearly that's something that you did is you, you had a passion for food and, uh, you know, these writing this sort of backstreets uh, cuisine and, and, and telling that story from a narrative perspective. And you just went down that path and then, you know, everything has sort of opened up from there. And, that, you know, from my own personal experience, that's what I would, I would say to people is, you know, get that passion. You know, once you feel something passionate about something, then the ability to, you know, as you were saying about barriers, the ability to get that passion out to other people is, is pretty easy, but you just need to really push yourself and, and, and define who you are and what the story you want to tell is. 
Yeah. And, you know, and I think I, you know, I was very lucky in the sense of having, you know, while kind of building, you know, building this side project, which has now become my full-time work, you know, having, you know, other places, you know, to work as a freelancer, you know, I mean, so it's not to make it sound like, oh, just dive right in. I mean, oh, no. right. It takes time. It takes effort. It exactly. Takes money. Yeah. You know, um, and it's, you know, that said, it's, it is harder now in the sense because those those other outlets that would support you while you're trying to build up your personal project perhaps now are, are diminished or it's changed, right? I mean, right. you know, one one of the main, when I was living in Istanbul, one of my main gigs and, you know, probably, you know, more, let's say, generously paying one, or at least, you know, kind of in, in today's terms, was writing for a website which was funded by the Open Society Institute. So, you know, so the philanthropic, you know, and I think there's so much more of that now in the sense of like philanthropic money, being used to pay, you know, for journalistic endeavors, um, young journalists, you know, I think now are, you know, there's a lot more of that kind of money in journalism versus just going straight to uh, a newspaper, you know, and, and having them, you know, pay for your assignment. Now people are looking towards uh, foundations. Um, you know, I think other uh, non-governmental organizations are setting up their own kind of journalistic enterprises, and that's a new outlet too. So it's, you know, the outlets have really changed. Yeah. And sort of the the disruption of our industry was, I mean, there used to be a pattern or a track that you followed uh, for your career. Right. You get a job, you get a job at a small newspaper, you get a job at medium, you work your way up. Yeah. And you know, maybe you're a columnist, maybe you specialize in something and then you go off and, and, and become a, a you know, a correspondent or a, a, about something specific. And I think the path of the freelancer has become more, more common of, you know, you're not going to find it. You're not going to be the food editor at, you know, a small paper because there's the small papers are struggling. And they're not paying a lot to sustain a food editor. So you're, if you want to write about food stuff, then you're going to need to, you know, work hard to, to produce that content, uh, you know, and maybe not get paid for it for a while and then supplement that with other, some sort of income, whether it's journalistic or non-journalistic. I think it's kind of the model that we have to move forward. Uh, one thing I, w I was thinking about when you were mm. talking about Istanbul and everything. I'm, I'm imagining a situation where you're traveling from someplace to someplace else. So you end up in, in Istanbul for a day. What's what's your culinary journey for a day? Where where do you go? Where do I go for? Uh, yeah, for yeah. A you day? say, oh, I, I'm going to have a day in Istanbul, so I'm going to get to to go eat. Where, yeah. where are you going to go eat? Oh God, it's uh, it's a uh, really hard. Um, the nice thing about Istanbul is it's it's a great walking city. So, I mean, I I, I definitely would start. I would probably spend most of my time in Bayolu. Bayolu is the um, the neighborhood, sort of the old European quarter, and it's got great back streets, um, of course, and uh, a great mix of places. It's less about sort of where, and, and I'd say more of a what, right? So, like, I would start my day very clearly, and there's a few places for this, but in Bayolu, there's a little restaurant called Ladis Ladis Two um, that serves kaimak. Kaimak is a um, like a clotted cream sort of thing. It's made from uh, water buffalo milk, and it's this super creamy, white, beautiful thing. Mozzarella thing. Though, isn't it? Well, yeah. it's it's more spreadable. It's really um, and it's served with honey on top, and you just it's incredible. I um, yeah. It, when we wrote about it, we we described it as as you know this is the food, the only food they serve in heaven, in the cafeteria in heaven. You know, it's just like this kind of <laughs> cloud like heavenly 
angelic, beautiful thing. So that's, you know, you start your day off with that. Do you bust your own table in heaven? That's what I want to know. <laughs> anyway. Just, and you, you know, so yeah, and then, you know, lunch. I'm, I'm a, living in Turkey um, turned me into a fan of liver. I never thought I would say this. Well, and that's what they say. I hear that a lot about about cuisines that are not American. The, yeah. The, 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 what are the, the sweetbreads yeah. um, and, and things like things, yeah. awful things yeah, that we yeah, wouldn't yeah, normally exactly. eat. Are, are, are like high art in other places. High art. So, you know, liver, yeah. So, you know, I, I, you know to me, liver was always the punchline of a joke, but like I, I kind of like it's um, there. So anyway, so I would go for lunch. There's a few places that do a special kind of liver for lunch. So in Bayolu, in that particular neighborhood, you would find a great spot for liver, you know, and then a couple of snacks along the way. I'm a big <laughs> fan of, um, you know, I mean, I've, of course, beyond baklava, one thing, uh, especially maybe this time of year, kind of more like fall into winter, there's a dessert of uh, poached quince. I don't know. It's it's this incredible thing that's served again with this kaimak, the, uh, the clotted cream. So that's something that, you know, kind of whenever I get back to Istanbul now, I kind of make a beeline for this one particular place that's in the fish market in this neighborhood, Beolu, that they make this great quince dessert. Yeah, you know, there's some spots for kebab. I mean, you get your pick or, you know, go out for a minute. I mean, it's hard to choose is the problem. But you um, have to choose. I've made it. You yeah, have to yeah. Choose. So I, I would stick in that neighborhood um, and then make sure I get a day two and then go... <laughs> <laughs> and then go. Uh, I couldn't get a connecting flight, so I'm exactly, gonna have to stay an extra day. You know. <laughs> but uh, it's um, yeah. The there's really, I mean, there's just so much to choose from. But there's also um, you know, this neighborhood that I mentioned before, the kind of more quote unquote conservative neighborhoods. A neighborhood called Fatih has incredible kebab spots. It's got one area that's a, um, a an old Ottoman Byzantine and then Ottoman era market area it still today serves as a market and it's got a lot of kurdish stores all around it so there's some great food from the east there anyways there's so much to choose from it's a bit overwhelming actually so so we, we live in a in, in a pretty good food city and there are a couple of pretty good food cities in in, in the united states and i know that, that you've got a um you've got a section of the website that's that's about rio have you ever thought about doing anything in the americas you know we we talk about it. Um, one of the things that we feel like in terms of our model is that the the value added that we bring is is we're kind of serve as these guides in cities that are harder to navigate on your own. Okay. Either either if it's language or geography or culture or you know just a tough place to get around sure. for whatever reason. So. Do you see New York so, you know, so, yeah, and, so, and Los Angeles well, are pretty well so, covered? So they're, they're, they're well covered, you know, for our audience, which, like I said, is mostly English speaking, you know, easier to get around. That said, we're about to start a project in Queens. Queens is great. I mean, Queens, New York is, you know, just this incredible. What's the food to get in Queens? Uh, well, I mean, that's the thing. I mean, it could be Thai, Chinese and Flushing. There's incredible Korean you know, and things that people probably don't know about, and things that you know, Queens is is amazing. I was looking, I was looking at a map. It's probably the only place in the world where it was a map of where what languages predominate in different neighborhoods, and it's probably the only place in the world where Tagalog lives side by side by Yiddish. You know, it's like mm -hmm. there's like Yiddish kind of bumping up to the border of Queens, coming up from from Greenpoint and Williamsburg, and then there's a Tagalog. Anyways, it's great. It's incredible. So, um, so we're gonna start a project there, looking at. Migrant cooking, you know, migrant communities. Sure. So to us, Queens kind of has some of that quality of what we find in places abroad in the sense of like a lot of languages, a lot of little neighborhoods, a lot of really interesting little holes in the wall. So that's going to, we're planting our flag in Queens. But like I said, in many ways, you know, we sort of feel like what we bring to the table 
works a bit better in a place where it's just harder to get around on your own and you really need that local friend to show you. So you say you say Queens is is the the next thing. Do you have, do you have any other places that you're gonna well, um, expand to? Uh, well, we just um, just got going in Lisbon uh, in terms of uh, doing um, some coverage there and adding it as a regular section to our site. And we're also developing a walk in Tokyo, which we're really excited about. We have somebody writing for us there, and uh, we're really very excited about it. Um, so those are those are the big projects we're working on right now. Okay. So uh, just just to sort of wrap things up, I, I want to talk briefly about uh, Culinary Backstreets as, as a website, and it's it's something that you get you, you launched pretty much by yourselves, or and um, how are you how are you financing? What's the uh, so yeah the structure? The, well, the structure is. Um, like I explained, you know, we have this editorial component and then we have the, let's say, revenue generating side, which is the food tours. We have some books and we have an app that we've done. Um, those are, let's say, you know, not as strong as, you know, revenue generators as, as the, the tours that we do. So really the model is to have this this one component, which... Um, is a you know more of a tourism business at the end you know kind at the end of the day at the end yeah. of the day and then have the editorial component which is um, supported by the revenue generating side yeah and that's that's really smart and something I you know people are always you know trying to figure out ways to uh, finance a, a website you know online publication and they're not necessarily thinking about events or services so much right and I, you know I should say that they work hand in hand because. You know, the the editorial that we do helps build our, you know, we feel like helps really establish our, our street cred. Sure. Yeah. You identify the places to go. That, but also, you know, on the web, we have a presence as the local, you know, food and restaurant guide to Mexico City, to Istanbul, to Tokyo. You know, so we really get ourselves set up in that way. And, and we find that that brings a lot of people in through the door, you know, to then look at our offerings, you know, the events that we do, the the, the activities that we do. And yeah, and it also helps us kind of scout out, you know, our people on the ground are sort of scouting out interesting places and it really in helps inform, you know, again, that narrative driven structure of the food tours that we do. And that's very much informed by the by the the journalism that we do um, writing about these places. So it's all it really works, you know, hand in hand. And for us, it's been been a really positive, um, positive model. Yeah. Well, it sounds like a wonderful sort of approach to, you know, narrative travel reporting. I find it really fascinating and really kind of uh, neat and, and something I want to really sort of dive into. Because if you're traveling, I mean, you want to experience what's what, what the, well, the country exactly, is. You know, and I would say that along with all the changes in journalism and, and in the changes in technology that allow you to sort of set up your own site very easily and distribute very easily, you know, there's also been a change in the way people travel. And I think we've been we've been very much the beneficiaries of that, you know, in the sense that people are want that authentic experience. People really want... You know, people really want to get that very unique local flavor. They want to get very hands-on, maybe. Um, you know, we'll, we'll get people, we'll get inquiries from people who are staying in, I don't know, $400 a night hotels in Istanbul, but they're like, take me to that little kebab shack that I saw, you know, on TV, on some show, or that mm -hmm. I heard about, you know. And so it's it's that high-low again, you know. So they're, they're, you know, they're, they're kind of people who are, have means and are, you know, can travel, you know, very nicely, 
on the other hand, want to you know not eat at that fancy restaurant in the hotel, but they really want to get that sense of local, real culture. So it's it's interesting. But I mean, it's not just people with means who are traveling away. I think everyone right. who's traveling now is interested in food and interested in, in very authentic local experiences. Yeah, and also you mentioned about the uh, the local expats, and they're re- they're there for a reason. They want to be there, and they want to find out. They want to have a resource that that tells them places they may not know about for sure okay well this has been great i I really appreciate you coming in pleasure Um, i encourage people to check this out especially if you're going to go traveling culinary backstreets and thank you very much thank you next on it's all journalism we talked to steve lubetkin co-author of the business of podcasting it's not about going viral it's not about having 20 million people that's the old advertising model you know you you throw something at the eyeballs or at the ears of 20 million people and a small percentage of it we know it will stick and they will buy the product or service. But that's not really the best use of a podcast. The best use of a podcast is for a very narrow focus, for an audience that lies awake at night trying to solve a problem and Googles that problem and then finds a company with a podcast where their subject matter expert talks about how they can solve that problem. That's where it really becomes effective. Check back next week for our conversation with Steve Lubetkin about the business of podcasting. You've been listening to It's All Journalism, a weekly podcast about the changing state of digital news. Find out more about us and download past episodes at itsalljournalism.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast and download past episodes on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. This week's podcast was produced by Amber Healy, Michael O'Connell, and Nicole Agrisco. It's All Journalism is produced in partnership with the Association of Alternative News Media. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast is brought to you by Tapacall, a super valuable tool for journalists and professionals looking to record crystal clear calls on their smartphones. We spoke to the folks over at Tapacall and learned that it's actually the number one business app for the iPhone in over 30 countries. Tapacall lets you easily record your incoming and outgoing calls, as well as share your recordings with colleagues, interviewees, and through social media. It's a perfect tool for recording phone interviews. Tapacall keeps people honest and accountable and ensures that you never miss an important detail for a story. Over 3 million professionals, including local news journalists and even CNN producers, trust Tapacall on a day-to-day basis. Visit tapacall.com slash podcast today and experience the easiest, most reliable, and convenient call recording app available. It's All Journalism listeners can get Tapacall at an exclusive 20% off discount by visiting tapacall.com slash podcast.